Hey there, and welcome to um, this episode. I don't know really what to call this. Um, we're recording this right now, uh, specifically for those who were not able to be at class on November 1st. Um, I know a lot of people are quarantined, um, but we're studying through John right now. And so what I didn't want to do was sit there and um, and let you miss this if you wanted to be a part of it. And so I thought, you know what, let's go ahead and record uh, tonight's lesson. And, and I think that we're going to have a really cool study as we begin John chapter 2. Um, I'm excited for this and I hope you are as well. I want to start out by reading the first 12 verses of the book or of chapter 2 of John. Now, this is going to be the entirety of the story. And I want us to read through the story. I'm sure that if you have grown up in church, many of you have read this story before. Um but I wanted us to read through it so we could kind of have the entire thing and then go back and hit some highlights uh, and then call it uh, a night. Um, and if you're listening to this on a different day, um, thank you so much for tuning in. We are so thankful. But if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open that up to John chapter 2. Maybe you're on your phone and you're opening that up. If you are listening and you can't get to a Bible, well, good news. We're going to read everything we talk about uh, so let's go ahead. I'm going to start reading in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And if you hear footsteps in the background, that is my dog running sprints in my house right now, um, which is pretty hilarious. Uh, but you might not be able to hear that. I'm not sure based on my headphones. Um, but we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 2. And on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, I think this passage is very interesting because it starts out by saying and bringing up uh, on the third day. Those are the first four words of John chapter 2. Um, and I think it's interesting here because we don't really realize when we read this story casually how fresh this story is into the ministry of Jesus. It says the third day. It's not sitting there saying, well, the third day and talking about this idea of of like like the third day of the week or anything like that. I mean, it's literally talking about what is taking place in the book of John up to this point. And, and if you drop back, you see John talk about Jesus in verses 19 through 28 of John chapter 1. Well, then you have day one. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's verse 29. Well, then you have day two 
In verse 35 of John chapter 1, the next day again, John was standing with his two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus and walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Um, then, well, I'm sorry. I said you have day one was there. You see, uh, you see Jesus introduced as he's walking up. Then you have day one where Jesus calls the first disciples. That's in the 31st verse. Then you have in verse 43, the second day, Jesus goes to Galilee. That's verse 43. He says, Philip, and says, follow me. And then he goes and has this conversation with Nathaniel where he says, hey, I saw you under the fig tree. That's when you get to on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So literally when we're sitting here talking about this story, we're talking about just a few days. We're not talking about this whole um, long time or on the third day of the week or the third day of the month or something like that. No, 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 no. He literally called some of his disciples the day before and the other ones did the day before that. We're not very far into this story. And so they've only been with him a couple of days, the apostles that is, and they're going to go to this wedding with him. And, and I know that it's interesting, or I know that it's, it's a weird thing to me at least to have this idea of, oh, you know what? You've had disciples for two days. Go ahead and bring them to this wedding. That'll be fine. Um, that's kind of odd to me. But he does it. We know that the mother of Jesus is going to be there because it says on the third day, there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus is there. And Jesus is invited with his disciples. And I think it's interesting that they so quickly invite his disciples. What we do in this story, though, is we see that the wine runs out. Here's something to know about this. That would have been ultra humiliating, like not just kind of humiliating, super humiliating to the family that had this run out. They were there to provide this feast. They had this all prepared. It was a wedding. They invited all these people from out of town and they get there and what happens? They run out of what they were supposed to be providing. This would have put a, a not only just like a, oh man, that wedding was horrible because they ran out of what we needed. What it would have done is it would have put this, put this kind of like thought process on this marriage. Like, mm, there's that marriage. Remember what happened at their wedding? The wine ran out. Everyone would would pin this on them for the rest of their marriage. That was the culture that was taking place back in the day. Now, this could have indicated several things. It could have indicated the family was poor. It could have indicated that Jesus brought a bunch of extra people, and and that caused uh, that caused them to um, lose wine. But it doesn't really matter. All that matters is that they were out of wine, and it was going to be humiliating for them. And so we're going to see Jesus act here, not in his own doing, but because of his mother. We see his mother walk up to him in in verse 3. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, I want to ask, why do you think the mother of Jesus would come to Jesus at this moment and say, they have no wine? This is uh, an interesting thought to me. I don't know what it is. Maybe... She knew that the compassion of Jesus would kick in. Maybe she knew that Jesus could fix the problem and she didn't want the family to be embarrassed. Maybe she was in a leadership role in in the wedding and she was like, hey, we need to get this figured out so I don't look like a total loser. Maybe she uh, knew that Jesus had already gone and faced temptation in the wilderness. I mean, when you think about it, you're not a mother. There's no mother who's going to sit there and not know their son spends 40 days in the wilderness. Um, But she might know that he's already faced temptation and might have heard about his baptism or been at his baptism where the spirit descends visibly like a dove on top of Jesus. Maybe she's seen all this and she knows that his ministry is about to begin, whatever it is. 
She comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, I'm your mother. I need you to fix the problem. And I think that this is actually a pretty hilarious exchange between the two of these. I mean, imagine this uh, moment taking place. Um, I I, I want to give an example, uh, and, and I feel... I, I hope that my mother, if she is listening, does not take offense to this. Um, but she is horrible with technology. Okay, like, like she's really bad uh, with technology. And this is not because she um, is not intelligent. It's not because of any reason, except for that she just doesn't choose to sit down and learn technology and figure it out. As a matter of fact, this happens pretty often. My mom will reach out to me. It happened to me last week. My mom will reach out to me and say, hey, Ben, I can't access my Google account. And I will respond, mom, I don't know your password or your Google account information. And she will say to me in response to that, but, but I, hey, I can't get into my Google account. And then do you know what I try to do? I try to help my mother fix her Google account that I know nothing about. And generally, I can find out how to do that because I, I search through her phone and, and do all the techie things that are pretty actually simple when it comes to Google and, and figure out how to solve her problem. Um, and, and I think that's kind of what happens with this story a little bit. Jesus' mother says, hey, Jesus, they have no wine. He says, mother, my hour has not yet come. Um, and, and she says to the servants who are sitting there, the muscle men, she says, oh, by the way, he's going to help you. Just do what he says. It's this almost exchange of like, okay, I'm a mother. I'm telling you what to do. I'm going to let you have a chance to do it your own. And then I'm going to have you do it no matter what. Um, And I think that that's a really interesting exchange. I think it's also interesting that Jesus calls her mother or calls her woman instead of mother. He references her in a way as almost as if to say, my professional life, and I say professional life, his life as a rabbi his life as the son of god his ministry is about to begin um and we really see that stand out but we see this exchange between jesus and his mother and jesus is going to say okay i'm going to do this miracle he obeys his mother sorry excuse me i'm about to sneeze i feel like um (laughs) but we get to verse six it says now there were six stone water jars there for the jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, I think this last bit is really interesting. John uses the phrase 20 or 30 gallons. He doesn't say 25 gallons. He doesn't say 30 gallons. He doesn't say 20 gallons. He gives us a roundabout number. Now, I imagine this is from him eyeballing it, and this is what many scholars believe. He eyeballs it, gives a guess, but he wants to make sure that he doesn't give a a full statement of fact when he doesn't know the facts. He makes sure that he just kind of gives this idea of saying, you know what? It's 20 or 30 gallons. I'm not really sure. It's somewhere in that range. It's it's whatever. Now, this is included on purpose um, because what this does is it sits here and it says, okay, when I give you a fact in this book, this book that is designed to help you believe that Jesus exists, when I give you a fact, that fact is true. You can have confidence it's true. You know how you can have confidence? Because if I don't know it as a fact, I'm not going to say it as a fact. I'm going to bring it up and I'm going to say it's 20 or 30 or, or maybe it's, it's you know, maybe he healed five or six people. Maybe he, he fed five or 6,000 men. It, it doesn't matter. He says, no, 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 here's a fact. Here is facts. 
when I state a fact, you can know it's a fact because if I'm not going to state a fact, I'm going to bring up this idea that I don't know. And so it gives us confidence throughout the rest of the book to look at the miracles that he's going to do and say, wow, that is really awesome. These are all true. This is factual. This is, this is amazing what he can do through this. And, and, and that is a really neat bit of writing. And we can see that. And what's beautiful about this story is that there's tons of really cool symbolism packed into this. And John is going to include this story on purpose. It's one of the seven miracles that we're going to see in the book of John. It's the first one that we're going to see. And it's the first miracle that Jesus does in his ministry. We see this idea of of it being really the third day of his ministry. He called his apostles two days ago before he goes to this wedding. And so it's very fresh into his ministry. And we're going to see a ton of really cool imagery or imagery. In this, verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now, why is this to the brim important? It's important because nothing is added to this water. If it would have been filled up halfway, well, well, okay, this miracle could have been done by adding some old cheap wine to the water. Maybe it was added by adding something to the water that gave it a taste like wine. But no, 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 that's, that's not what it says. This is where John, the writer, obviously inspired by the Spirit, is so brilliant. Because the first miracle of Jesus, and John writes it down, it shows that Jesus transforms things. He doesn't modify things. These jars were filled to the top. There was no room to add anything. There was no room to modify what was already in the water. It was fully water, and Jesus fully transforms the water into wine. It's a direct image of how he is going to transform us from something old to something new. It's a brilliant miracle for Jesus to begin his ministry with because it's beautiful symbolism of what people are going to do once they are in Christ. This idea that we are not going to modify ourselves, but we are going to fully transform into a follower of Jesus. It's a really cool concept that we have to love and that we have to admire about this first miracle that is talked about in John chapter 2. In verse 11, we see that this is going to help his apostles believe. It's interesting to note that the wedding guests and the master of the feast and the bridegroom have no idea where this wine comes from. But when they taste it, and specifically the master of the feast tastes it, He says, wait a minute, why have you saved the best wine for last? This doesn't make sense. You're doing it all wrong. Why are you doing this? He doesn't know that it's from a miraculous source. He doesn't know that it's this amazing um, wine that someone created in the moment. All he knows is that, hey, it's the best wine. It's the best thing we would have had all night. Why do we just now bring this out? And the disciples are going to say, whoa, that is amazing. Um, the next thing is, and the thing that we're going to close on tonight is one of the coolest things to me. And it's a huge reason for people who saw this take place and for the readers to believe that Jesus is the son of God. Um, I, uh, I looked up the process, um, because this was a big part of what Jesus did with this miracle. That was a big part of helping the people who saw it believe in Jesus, um, I looked up the process of winemaking. Maybe you know how wine is made. I, I did not. Um, you know, I, I, I am not super interested in wine uh, at all, uh, at all. And, and just that concept, I don't have a huge desire for it. Um, but looking at the process of creating it, 
really adds to the power of this miracle. Now, I want to add a disclaimer. Um, we can have a conversation about the drinking of alcohol. Obviously, we haven't brought that up up to this point. Um, I would much rather have that conversation with you face-to-face instead of over a podcast uh, because there are a lot of little things that um, I think can be inappropriately communicated uh, about this topic if we were to sit here and and bring it up over a podcast. So what I want to do is, if you're listening to this right now and you have questions, um, reach out and say, hey, I am interested to what you have to say uh, and what not even what I have to say, what the scripture says about drinking alcohol, and I would love to walk through it. Um, obviously, they are making wine in this process, and so we're going to talk a little bit about the process of making wine to understand how this miracle is even more amazing than what it looks like on the surface level. The first thing is uh, that you have to do in the making of wine is you have to grow the grape, right? It takes grapes to make wine, so you have to plant seeds. You have to grow a vine and, and make a, a grape. You then have to harvest the grape. And then you have to crush and press the grape. Then you have to have the fermenting of the juice. Now, here's the thing. It will start fermenting within 6 to 12 hours uh, of being crushed. Now, the other side of things is that fermentation can require anywhere from 10 days to a month or more. It's a long process to ferment. There are a lot of different ways to do it, but it's always a long process. Then you have the clarification of the wine, which filters out the bad stuff that's in it. And then you have the aging and bottling. And so what this would be would be letting it sit for a while, um, depending on the type of wine. Uh, I guess it, it can make it a, a better um, flavor uh, and things like that. So there's all that that goes into this. And this was the process that they've always done. They've always had this process in place. This is what they would have done in in the first century. This is what would have been done in the days of Jesus. This is what would have been done to make the wine that was served first at this wedding. It was a huge process, and it's a process to make wine. It's a it's a months long process. A plant doesn't grow overnight. The grapes do not grow on the plant overnight. The grapes do not ripen overnight. No, it takes days, it takes months, it takes a long time in order for this wine to be created. And and so, you sit here and you look at this miracle. And there's two jars, and there's, there's jars, not two jars, there's jars of water. And they dip the, the taster into it and give it to the master of the feast. And he says, this is the best wine that there is. This is the best wine we had. Why are you just now serving it? It doesn't make sense. And what those who knew where the wine had come from, for those who knew where the wine had come from, it made even less sense. Because they're sitting there in a moment saying, wait a minute, there were no grapes that went into this. There was no harvest of the grapes that went into this. There was no crushing of the grapes that went into this. There was no fermentation of the grapes. There was no clarification of that. There was no aging of this. And this is the best wine. This is better than what they started out with. This is amazing. This man, who are we really sure he's a man, just took some water and then made it to wine he had no ingredients to make wine. It doesn't make sense. It's kind of like, you know, the creation is something without ingredients. 
kind of like how when you didn't have ingredients to create land or trees or plants or animals or people or rivers or anything on earth, and yet it was created. And I think the people who are sitting there, specifically the disciples who see this taking place, are going to sit there and say, whoa, 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 whoa. This rabbi is not a normal rabbi. This rabbi just created something from nothing in the same way God created the earth from nothing. He was greater than creation itself. He was greater than the creation process of wine because he created the creation process of wine. And he had the power to bypass that creation, to speak it into his existence in the same way that God spoke the earth into existence. When we realize these things, in the same way the apostles believe, we also can believe. We also can have our life change and our mentality change when we see these things. It really adds depth to the story of the wedding at Cana when we look at it in these ways. I hope that you have enjoyed doing a little bit of a deep dive into the first 12 verses of chapter 2. Um, uh, this is a really, really neat thing that, that takes place um, here, and there's so much more that we could have gone into, um, but unfortunately, uh, we're not going to spend time on that tonight. But thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, I hope that if you're listening to this because you were quarantined, you are not sick and that you start to feel well if you are, and that you make a full recovery if you are sick. Um, You guys have a blessed rest of your day.